Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? This is an episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to it. On this show, we welcome Ed Berghoff, a musician, songwriter, producer, and music publisher. Some of the top recording artists have interpreted his songs. It's a long list, including Garth Brooks, Billy Ray Cyrus, Winona, Doug Stone, Engelbert Humperdinck, and many others. He's had a lot of interesting experiences, from being Deanna Carter's band leader to composing music for hit TV shows. So, Ed, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Sir, have you got a joke for us? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. A good joke. Uh, oh, man. I, the, it's always the dirty ones that come to mind fast. You know? <laughs> <laughs> let's see if I can come up with a clean one. Okay. There's a there's a priest and a rabbi. And um, the rabbi is going to the priest. So, so a priest, is that as good as it gets for you guys? And, and the priest goes, well, no. If you're you know, really a great priest and everything, you can get recognized by the top and, you know, become, uh, you know, maybe a, a bishop. A bishop, that's nice. But is that as far as you guys go? A bishop? And he goes, well, no. I mean, you know, if you're a great bishop, you can become an archbishop. An archbishop, that's nice. But that's it for you guys? That's as high as it goes? He goes, well, no. I mean, if you're like one of the best archbishops of your time, you could be recognized from you know, the top, the Vatican, and they might make you into a cardinal. A cardinal, that's nice. But that's it? He goes, no, I suppose that, you know, if you're really the greatest cardinal of your time, you know, you could actually become the Pope. My mom would be so proud. And Rabbi goes, the Pope. So that's nice, but that's it for you guys, right? He goes, yeah, the Pope's the top. What do you, what do you mean? He says, what about becoming a Jesus Christ? He says, our Lord and Father, he said, one of our boys did it. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. <laughs> well done. You got to have the accent. <laughs> well, Ed, thank you again for joining us. I think most stories are best from the beginning. So where do you call home port? I live in Ventura now. I was actually born in Hollywood when you could still be born there. And, uh, but yeah, Ventura, I, you know, for years I lived in uh, Santa Monica Canyon, the Palisades down in LA, moved to, to Nashville, actually Franklin, and then moved back to the Palisades house. And then about, well, quite a while ago now, 2007, we moved up here to Ventura. So was music a big part of your life from an early age? Pretty early on. I... You know, I was listening to it all the time. Family always had the radio on and stuff like that. My folks kind of were sort of somewhat artistic beatniks, particularly my mom. And uh, so they were playing a lot of jazz and stuff like that and had these beatnik parties, <laughs> which were crazy affairs. But anyways, by the time I was 12, we lived next door to my aunt and, and cousins, and uh, she got a guitar. And 
I found the guitar. I don't know if she ever even really got a chance to play it that much because I was always on it over there all the time playing on that guitar after school. And, and uh, my folks got me a, a beginning guitar for my next birthday. So it started when I was about 12, 11 or 12, something like that. When the music was becoming a bigger part of you, when it was looking like that was a direction for you, how did your parents feel about that? Were they supportive? My mom was. Uh, my grandparents, not so much. You know, I mean, they liked it, but they, you know, always were hoping that I would go into the family business or something like that more than uh, pursue music. So what What about some of your favorite artists? What What were the bands? What were the... Who were the singers that you were most identifying with? Well, like many of my generation, that Beatles show on the Ed Sullivan show, right? That was the thing that cemented it for me, kind of. I mean, watching that, I mean, I literally did point at the TV and look at my mom and say, that's what I want to do, you know? And kind of from that point on, I was a huge Beatles fan. I was a huge Stones fan. And then Jimi Hendrix came along, and, and Cream, those bands were very big in my life, as was Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. And it was pretty eclectic from the very beginning, and I also liked jazz, and it was like, and I've always been eclectic. So the first group that I ever really formed that was, uh, other than a sort of throw-together, sometimes playing high school band, was this what would be called Americana now. My buddy Billy Block coined that phrase years later, uh, Americana music. But, you know, with, with my friend Daniel and Eddie, uh, Daniel Kahane and Ed Coleman, and we had this little folk band that played like traditional folk music and fiddle tunes called the Durant Family. And then at the same time, I formed a band um, with my friend David Fairweather called the Bozone back in about 1970. And uh, that was like a psychedelic surf band, you know, sort of cross between because we all lived out by the beach. And um, so we did like sort of a, a psychedelic version of surf music, but really more influenced my rock and Jimi Hendrix and things like that. Interesting. Psychedelic f- surf music. Yeah. I mean, the band The Bozone in 72 we were approached by this guy named Dennis Dragon. You know who Dennis is or was? No, I don't know that name. Uh, well, his f- father was, um, what was his real, anyways, I can't think of his first name anymore, but he was the conductor of the Philharmonic Orchestra in L.A. back in those days. And all his sons, Daryl Dragon was uh, um, the captain, and Tennille, he was the captain of that band. Anyways, Dennis all of them were very, very talented guys. Anyways, he called us up because they were putting together a uh, soundtrack for a surf movie called A Sea for Yourself. It was a Hal Jepsen film. And they were getting all the best local bands to perform some of the original mu- music on this on the soundtrack. And so Dennis contacted us and we recorded, I think we got four tracks on the soundtrack, double tra- soundtrack album. It actually became, because they put out a double album, it became 500 copies of it only. It became a cult classic and quite expensive later on. And they finally re-put it out again in in 2018. Unfortunately, Dennis passed away right before it was re-released. So that's kind of sad. 
So that, and that's what started me as a writer. I mean, I got my, I signed up with BMI in 72 because I had uh, one of those songs was something I co-wrote with, with uh, David Fairweather, the lead singer. You were mentioning this eclecticness and now that you had started songwriting, did that eclecticness, the fact that you liked jazz, you liked country, you liked a lot of rock music, did that help you? Well, that's a funny thing, Paul, because it's <laughs> yes and no, right? You know, because I think that if I would have stayed more focused, maybe I would have probably got further faster, but I did write in all those different styles. So, I mean, that was kind of... Uh, a problem back then. I don't think that the industry knew how to pigeonhole somebody who did that. And, you know, and as was further proof of my, by the next band that I joined in 75 called Hot Lips and Fingertips, which was like two fiddles, a harmonica player, bass, bass me on guitar and drums. And, and, um, and it was, you know, totally eclectic. We did everything from classical to rocked up Irish and Scottish fiddle tunes, to Texas swing, to Benny Goodman, Charlie Christian swing, to rock and roll and Merle Haggard. And, and we, we, it was everything. It was all slammed into one thing. And it was a crazy wild band that had a wonderful run in Santa Monica at a place called O'Mahony's, where we played four nights a week for over eight years. And we actually got some TV work out of that. George Slaughter, who was the guy who, um, I don't know if you remember him from uh, Laugh-In, the producer of Laugh-In. Tommy Thomas at the, at the Palomino, he got a call from George and he asked if there was a good band that he could recommend that would be great for being the, sh the band on his show, the new show he was putting out called Real People. And he, he told him about us because we've been playing out there and doing a good job for him for many years. And um, so we went and auditioned, and we got the real people job, which was five seasons at NBC, and then a season of the show called Speak Up America that's kind of long forgotten, but man, was it ahead of its time. Pretty heavy show to be on if you had to be there to see it. He'd bring on, like, the Ku Klux Klan and, and the Black Panthers on the same show and have police there <laughs> hmm. <laughs> to, like, make sure nobody got out of hand. And it was, like, I think it was too heavy too soon but it was a great show. And, uh, so. Hmm. So when you first got signed, were there any aspirations? Did you have any idea about what you were trying to do in terms of writing songs professionally? Well, I'd been writing in Hot Lips and Fingertips. I was really the only writer. I think Daniel wrote maybe one song, but everything else was my stuff. And it kind of was trial by fire. We'd rehearse it on a Wednesday when we did our rehearsal. And I'd play it that night and kind of get a reaction right away, whether I've written something that had promise or something that really should just go bye-bye. And that's kind of how I learned, you know, that in the beginning. And it wasn't, you know, and it wasn't until years later that, you know, after I'd met Larry and um, Larry Bastian and, and others like Bud, Earl Bud Lee, and uh, that... You know, I started really focusing in on just writing country music. And that's an interesting story in itself, too, how I met Larry. Should I go on about that? Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. Okay. So the Hot Lips and Fingertips band, we had we had a lot of fans. It was a huge fan base. The place was packed every night. And some of the people there were filmmakers, a couple of them, uh, Trevor Black and 
uh, what's his name? I'm blanking right now. But anyways, they, they did these couple of children films. One was called Goldie, the Last of the Golden Bears. And they wanted the traditional sounding fiddle tune music that we did, but they wanted it broken down without the drums and, and bass and all that. So four of us um, went and recorded all this music for the for that film. And that was it, it was pretty successful on cable TV and stuff like that and in theaters. And then they did Goldie 2. And on Goldie 2, Larry lived across the street from Trevor in, the, in Camp Nelson up in the mountains. And, you know, Larry was already being, you know, had had a lot of success and then went back to sort of being doing what he did before, which was, you know, be a biologist for the orange groves and the citrus groves down in the valley down there, which he's always been really good at. I'm sure he's retired now. I think that his sons do it now. So he had Larry do most of the soundtrack on the second movie, but he wanted us to come back in and do some more music so that they could blend the two films and then also have us play in the studio on a lot of Larry's stuff so that the sound of the two films was similar. And that's where I met Larry for the first time. And it was basically, I think, what kind of got us sort of, you know, closer was he wanted me to play this little intro on one of his pieces on the mandolin. And um, he sat right over my shoulder, and I knocked it down in one take. And... He just kind of looked at me and nodded, and that was the beginning of our relationship. And then a few years later, I think, so that film, that second film was like 86, I think, when I met Larry. A couple of years later, I was working for Trevor because there was, music had dried up in L.A. in the 80s. The disco era kind of killed everything for live music. And uh, I was looking for work, and I called Trevor up because he was a sound mixer. And I said, can you fit me in on any film as a boom guy? Uh, I'm a quick study and, and, you know, give me a shot. And about six months later, after I asked him that, he got a film up near where he was living called Shadows in the Storm that started, uh, starred Ned Beatty and Mia Sarah. And on that film, while I was doing that, Earl Bud Lee, Bud to me, I mean, I always called him Bud, and Dwayne Blackwell came out from Nashville to write with, with Larry while I was working on the film down the hill from them right there in the middle of Cam Nelson at the lodge. And uh, a lot of times Larry was just riding with, with Dwayne and Bud had nothing to do. And he'd come down there and we, and we became friends there. And, you know, by the time that was done and he went back to Nashville, he invited me to come back to Nashville and ride with him. So I went back there and we started riding together and he took me around Bud's wonderful that way. I mean, he introduced me to every, took me in and out of every office, introducing me to everybody I mean, so many people, it was just insane. I couldn't believe it. It was so easy there compared to how it was in L.A. But it was back then. I don't know what it's like really so much these days, but it was great back then. Basically, on the way home, I was on the plane with Larry. And we sat next to each other, next to each other and uh, decided that, you know, he asked if I'd like to come up and write. So that's when we started writing. And the first song we ever wrote was Cowboy Bill. We wrote another one called Louisiana in the Ring that's gotten a lot of attention, too. So that's how that all started. Huh. So you said Cowboy Bill was the first song you ever wrote together? It is. Huh. And, uh, and it, it took a while because we first we went down the wrong path. <laughs> we were writing about a rodeo clown for a while. And then, I don't know, maybe one or two sessions in, we decided that that wasn't the way to write it and and Larry came up with this idea about doing it about a Texas Ranger. 
both of us did not know all that much about Texas Rangers, so we did a little studying up to make sure that we didn't, you know, go off a cliff with it. And it took a while to write it because Larry lived up in Camp Nelson and I was living down in, in L.A., you know. So I would come up and stay for a few days and we'd write on it. It took about six months and we got it written. And then we did uh, Louisiana in the Rain was the next song we wrote. And that did not take us as long. We got that done in a couple sessions. And, it's, you know, it's a completely different kind of a song. But it's one, actually the song that I get requested to play more than any other song I've ever written. Really? Well, tell us a little bit about that. You said Louisiana in the Rain? Yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that song. I'm trying to remember what got us started on it. I don't, it might have been a groove thing that I had, and, and Larry came up with the idea. You know, I should, I should say this, though, before I even get into that. I mean, how much Larry has meant to me is very important. He, he really was my writing mentor as far as, you know, as learning how to become a good lyricist. Larry's one of the best. He really can turn a phrase better than anybody I know. And, and I know a lot of great writers. But Larry is, you know, he's the one. And he really, you know, he took me under his wing and taught me a lot. And uh, I'm forever grateful to him for, for doing that. Anyway, so getting back to uh, Louisiana, I had this groove. I, I'm pretty sure that's how it started. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, how Larry remembers it for sure, but he might remember it a little bit differently. But I think it was the groove. We got going on that. And he got started on, the, you know, writing some lines. And he came up with, I'm sure he came up with Louisiana in the Rain. And we wrote, you know, I, I was up there for a few days and we got a lot of it written. But we didn't have really the bridge part. So we left it there and I kind of took it home. We had talked about what it might say, but we not, you know, as bridges need to be something that just sort of ties it all together and just another thought on the subject. Otherwise, it's not worth writing one which I think he shares my, that opinion with me. And uh, I took kind of like what we talked about, and I wrote the bridge when I was at home, and I brought it back up to him, and he loved it. And uh, a lot of people really love that bridge, so I think I did a good job on that. It's, it goes, uh, you know, a Cajun swim a river for a party. Like a gator, our hides are playing tough. Water never puts a damper on our good times. This party's over when the rain has had enough. Who boy, hey, hey. That's it. Hmm. How would you describe Larry Bastian to someone who hasn't met him? Wow. Larry is, well, I like what, I think Dwayne, Dwayne Blackwell said this one time. He said he's a redneck poet, and that's what he is. <laughs> and, and he's the best, you know. I mean, he's... Uh, He's lyrically, he's a genius, and it, he does, he comes up with stuff that's so simple, but it's always, but, but it, it can turn, you know, like turning a phrase and do it so simply that it just sounds like conversation, and like you just would say that talking to a friend, and which ultimately, to me, is the best way to write a lyric. You know, I'm the, my favorite lyrics always roll off the tongue, unless if you're just talking to a friend in a room. And, um, but Larry, the man himself is, he's got a lot of integrity. He's him and Myrna have been together their whole lives. S staying with them was always a pleasure. We used to, you know, 
well, I don't know if he drinks anymore, but we used to put uh, have a good time drinking together and laughing, and you know, Jack and Ginger was the, was the drink. Still is my favorite drink. And uh, what I would love about Larry, we'd go for hikes when we were writing out a song. We'd go take a hike up in the mountains there. We'd be just walking along, and then all of a sudden Larry would be kind of quiet for a while, you know. And I knew whenever he got like that, it was just best to not say anything because he was he was on to something. And he would come up with stuff, you know. He'd come back, he'd go, what about this, Ed? And, you know, and he'd come out with some line, and you just go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how it is, you know, writing with him. Is he, you know... We used to make jokes about it. Sometimes he'd go go to the throne, you know, and come back with one of those lines from being in there, you know. So uh, it's so so funny. But anyways, so we wrote Cowboy Bill and Lizzie in the Rain, and um, and then I went back to Nashville and was introduced. I'd already met Bob Doyle uh, because Bud took me into that office when I went the first time, but um, we went there and was introduced to Garth, who was signed as a writer to Bob and, um, but he was also singing demos. And then we went in, I, was, I remember that day there was like, we cut, they cut 10 songs that day. And I got to play on, on a couple of ours. And, um, but I just played mandolin and Garth sang Cowboy Bill. I did. He just nailed it. I mean, it was, he was the best de- demo singer I ever heard. And actually I like his vocal on that demo better than the record. Because there's the way his voice cracks when he gets to, and he was clutching a badge that said Texas Ranger, and an old yeller letter that said Texas is proud. That part right there, which is the big moment in the song, his voice cracks in there, <laughs> and it, and it's just you know it just rips your heart out. You know, it's just it's so good. And uh, he wanted to sing Louisiana the Rain that day, but Larry had got some other guy to come in there and sing it, and I wished we'd let Garth sing it. But he did. He actually did cut it a couple of times, but it never made it on a record. He did because the band was not hooking it like he wanted. And uh, I remember he, I was over at Bob's office one day, and he called over there. They were trying to cut it, and he said, "Could you have Ed lay it down on a tape for us over here?" And I said, "I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, why don't you want to?" why don't I just come over there and I can lay it, lay it down with the guys and you can just erase my track afterwards. So the groove's right. And they didn't want to let me do that for whatever reason. And, um, so I put it on a tape needless to say, they, they did cut it again, but it didn't still didn't come out. It, it was the last song cut from the record. And that would have been, uh, on, uh, the third album, I think they tried to put the first time they cut it was for the, for the second album. Anyway, that's that. That's how things go. There is another funny kind of story. I remember that Garth had called Larry and asked if he could put Cowboy Bill on his album on the first record. And Larry called me up and he said, well, Ed, what do you think? Garth wants to put Cowboy Bill on his record. I said, great, let him do it. And Larry, Larry said, I, this may not be exactly right, but he said, I don't know. Larry. You know, Garth's a really good demo singer. I don't know how it's going to go as an artist. <laughs> Uh, pretty funny (laughs) it's really something that the first song that you write with Larry ends up being recorded by isn't it true Garth is the biggest selling artist ever I think he is the biggest selling solo artist ever 
I could be wrong about, you know, it might be the biggest selling solo country artist ever, you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's right up there. I mean, what it, it's, uh, I don't know which, you know, it is absolutely officially, but I think I've heard that before that he's the biggest selling solo artist of all time. One of the other songwriters you were talking about, he was a past guest on this show and a very philosophical kind of guy. And you were mentioning about him taking you around and introducing you to so many people. Tell us about Earl Bud Lee. Have you written a lot of songs with him? Yeah, I have, actually. So far, the only person that's ever cut one of our songs, um, unfortunately, is me. <laughs> but uh, there's a couple of them that, are, that really are wonderful songs, and I wish they would see the light of day beyond my doing them. But one of them is one that Garth sang the demo on, on a different session. It's called Going Under Over You. It's just a wonderful, wonderful song. It's so well written. I came off the plane, and I said, Bud, I've got this idea. I don't really have much of a musical thing for it, but I love this title, I'm Going Under Over You. And he looked at me and went, I'm going under getting over you. Just sang, sang the music. And I said, that's it. And we just went back to his house and wrote it. And uh, it took a few days. I mean, you know, it's funny. Bud, I, I'll tell you, writing with Bud is very interesting. He, he'll he get on a roll on something, and he'll knock out a chorus and a verse in, like, no time. It'll just You almost just have to, you have to have a recorder on or a pen handy and write fast. He'll, he'll get on a moment of just this sheer genius that he is and then he'll go okay well we'll come back to it later and you know I, I learned after a while it's best to try to make him sit there and do more and try to get more written with him right then than do it later because I ended up finishing a lot of the songs we started that got started like that you know and that would be the end of the contribution because I'd go back home and have to finish it at home but um, the contributions were always wonderful and uh to this day, Bud and I are still very, very close friends. I see him every time I go back to Nashville, and uh, we talk regularly. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories about Earl Budley and about, like, friends in low places and what happened with the publishing on that and all that stuff. And I don't really need to reiterate all that here. I do know, I can tell you this, that he's gotten that back now because the years have passed and he's gotten all his publishing back. And... uh He's doing really well. He's even cleaned up his whole act, you know, so I'm very happy for him. There was a song yesterday I was listening to from Billy Ray Cyrus. You had pointed me in that direction. So tell me a little bit about, about that song, Crazy About You, Baby. Okay, well, this, when I was living, I lived in Franklin. That's where we moved, had a cabin outside of Franklin, Tennessee, and, um, and I was writing with all kinds of people in town, and one of them was Jeffrey Steele, who I knew from back in L.A. We'd known each other back here through the Palomino connection and all that stuff, and, and uh, through Billy Block and his songwriter showcases that he did every month out here before he moved to Nashville. And Do you know who Billy Block was? You've heard of him? I have not heard of him. He's the guy who pretty much is acknowledged as the guy who coined the phrase Americana music. He had um, a thing called Western Beat, 
in Los Angeles, and then he moved it to Nashville, where he did a songwriter showcase every week for years until he passed a few years ago. You know, he was, I mean, in Nashville, everybody knows Billy, you know, it was, he had so many friends. He was a great drummer as well. And, uh, but just a, a wonderful energy guy who could really make things happen. And, uh, right. So Jeffrey and I had been writing, uh, we'd written a few things. And one day I came over there and I had that, that hook at the beginning that the demo's a lot different from the record. So it's like, I wish you could hear how the demo went. This happens a lot where the demo is, I think better than the record. And that does happen a lot. But anyways, I had this hook line. That's the intro. And I was just playing this thing and he goes, what's that? And I said, well, it's, it's just sort of offbeat thing and the drums on the other side of it. And then it corrects here, you know, and, and he goes, that's really cool. Let's do that. And so, and that's how the song started. And, um, and then, you know, Jeff is, he's a hell of a singer. So he sang it. And, uh, I think at one point he was, he was doing a record for Curb. I don't know what happened with all that. I think he was doing, he, he was signed as Boy Howdy with them before. And he was still associated with them. But in, in, at the end of the day, um, the demo went all around town and, um, every place I played it, people went nuts. It was, it was just, people would be dancing. It was just a wonderful dancing, good feeling, fun song. And, um, Billy Ray got his hands on it and wanted to cut it. And so there was somebody else that wanted to do it at the same time. And I can't remember that artist's name. And it was a little bit of a tug of war over that. And, um, but we ended up going with the Billy Ray one cause they were promising us a single. So that's, that's what happened with that. Unfortunately, the single did not do that well. That's just the way it goes. I mean, Clear Channel had come into force then, so if you didn't make it past the first couple of weeks, you were toast. It, it makes things very difficult. It's not like the old days where you could like play a record at a station where you knew somebody, and and if everyone called in, you had yourself a hit. You know, <laughs> those days are long gone. If now it's like there's just a couple people whose voice matters, and if you, they're not behind it, then that's the end of that. So that's that's what happened with that. It has been cut by a few other like minor artists in Europe and stuff like that since then. Well, on the note of songs getting cut by uh, more than one artist, there's a great song that you wrote. The first version I heard of it was the Engelbert Humperdinck version. I'm hoping you can tell us about your song, Healing. Ah, uh, Healing. That's one of the songs I'm proudest of. What happened with that was there was a, I through Larry, I'd met a guy named Glenn Allen and um, great singer, really can milk a ballad. And anyways, we hit it, we really hit it off and we became friends and we started writing and Glenn lived up in Oregon, but he would come down or, well, he lived in Washington, right over the border from Oregon. And he would come down to LA all the time and stay for a week or two with my friend, his friend, basically, and my friend, too, Phil Kovac, who was uh, one of the guys from Left Bank Management. And we would write. Anyways, Glenn got a call from a guy named Art Ford and that they were doing a movie called Silent Fall, and they needed an end title track. And apparently, a lot of people had tried to write it. They'd given it to all their staff writers over there, and, and, um, and no one really had hooked it. And they'd sent it out to a lot of really good writers, but no one can nail it. So they asked if we could 
try to write it. And and Glenn came over and, and um, he said, so it, Art was saying that, you know, or Glenn just made, you know, gathered this from what Art, Art was saying. He said it has to do with something with the healing factor at the end. So, you know, he was right on the thing, healing factor. And I said, well, why don't we just call it healing? You know, I mean, you're saying it. There it is, you know. Just don't, factor doesn't matter, but the healing part, you know. And he went, yeah, that's it. And basically he'd, he'd already come up with it. So we went over to our famous, favorite Chinese restaurant. I was living, my girlfriend at the time was uh, Kilty Reeves. And so the three of us went over there and to our favorite Chinese restaurant, House of Lee in the Pacific Palisades, which is not there anymore, but it was sure good. Went there since I was a kid. And we wrote, we wrote the song and we wrote most of it that night when we came back from the restaurant. All but, I don't know, we got together one more time and it was finished in two days. And we, and then we had to do a demo. Glenn had to go back up to Washington and he sent down a piano. We found that this demo singer that could sing like really well. I mean, a really good uh, singer. I can't remember her name, but she uh, did a wonderful version of it. We found we've got the key and Glenn, Glenn sent down a piano track, which I had to go pick up at the airport. Just crazy day. I'd eaten some fish the night before. By the time I got home, the food poisoning hit me. <laughs> the girls coming over. I had to teach my girlfriend at the time how to run the tape machine while I was heaving ho in the other room. <laughs> and anyways, we got the thing done. Got it over to Art. And he was shopping it all over the place for who's going to sing it. Now, we did it where it was like as not a duet. It was supposed to just be just one artist singing it. I don't know, along the way, somebody got the idea that this should be a duet. And about within a month, Art had gotten Celine Dion and Michael Bolton to commit to it. And that's who was going to cut it. But they couldn't find the time where they were both off the road together where they could get in the studio and do it. And this went on, and then the movie was coming out soon, and we thought we were just dead in the water and it wasn't going to happen. I don't know how it did happen, but Winona heard the song fell in love with it. And she was at that time going through some hard times and her friend, Michael English had, who was the gospel singer had got caught having an affair and had to leave gospel music. And, and so they, they were both going through some hard times and this song just hit them. And so they went in and cut it and the rest is history. So, you know, they did a wonderful job. Guy Roche was the producer. They absolutely just, that version of the song is one of those times where the record is better than the demo, you know, so it, it does happen the other way around too. And they did a fabulous job and, uh, it was an AC hit. I mean, it made it to 12 or 13 on the AC pop charts. And that's, I think how Engelbert heard it was because it was a hit on the radio. So and that's kind of the story of it. I mean, is there any other details you would like me to say? I mean, t t tell about it. What did you think of the Engelbert interpretation of it? Um, I think it's fine. I It's kind of hard to beat the Winona Michael English version. I think that they, that one's out of the park, and I think the Engelbert one is good. It's just, you know, how do you beat that first one? It's just, at least to my taste, I don't know, maybe I'm nuts. <laughs> but to my taste, to my ear, I think that the first one's better, you know. 
I'm also hoping you can go into the experiences that you had being the band leader for Deanna Carter. Okay, sure. That happened because of the guy I mentioned a while back, Glenn's friend, Phil Kovac. It was one of the brothers of who are left bank management. Phil just passed away about a year ago, unfortunately. But still, back in those days, he was very active. He called me up and said, hey, Ed, Glenn said that you might be able to put a, a band together for me. we got this new artist on Capitol Records, and we're about getting ready to go do the radio tour and all that stuff. Do you think you could do that? And, you know, I knew Phil pretty, not great, but I knew him pretty well. And I said, how many days do I have, Phil? <laughs> and he goes, you got five days. And I went, oh, boy. And so I said, let me, let me make some phone calls, and I'll call you back. I got lucky. I was able to get everybody I wanted, really. A couple just came off the road. One had just left a, a band uh, that was a road band. And um, and then Dina's brother was in the band, too. So that was one guitar slot we didn't have to, to fill. So the band came together. We went into rehearsals. The next thing we knew, we were flying down to Florida doing the radio tour thing. But we did it acoustically. We didn't have drums at that point. And uh, they wanted to keep it like sort of geared down, not full on, which was kind of strange because the you know the record had you know a lot of drums and a lot of piano and stuff like that in it. But so we went down there and did it, and it was it was a good time. Got to play a lot of golf, and the next thing you know, Strawberry Wine comes out because that was the main song they were getting ready to release in a week. It comes out and it goes to the top of the charts, and it stayed there for seven or eight weeks, and all of a sudden we're thrown out on the road. I mean, it was like crazy whirlwind. We're doing TV shows. We're up in New York. We're out in L.A. We're going all over the place. And then we were on tour. And, man, it was at, it didn't take very long. It was about a couple of weeks into it. I was talking to Scott Hendricks, came up to New York where we were. He was the president of the label at the time. He's going, how's it going, Ed? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Scott. I mean, if this, you know, this thing's going crazy it's really fast. And if we're going to go out on the road and really do this right, you know, we need to have a drummer and we need to, and we need to get a keyboard player because this stuff is just, you know, it's just, everything has a keyboard on it and we got to have a drummer. We can't just go out like this the way we've started, you know, and he kind of resisted me a little bit on that and then decided to go for it. And so I called Glenn, my friend Glenn Allen, I wrote healing with and said, Glenn, you want to come and join this band? And he said, what, are you kidding me? And I said, no. I said, you're perfect for it. And you sing and you play. And you know, I mean, we need a keyboard player and it's right up your alley. And so he said, okay. And he came out, stayed with me. We got a real good drummer, Mel Watts. And that was it. And then before you knew it, we were just gone on the road, you know, four weeks out, a couple, a couple days home, six weeks there, you know, and then we ended up doing a whole tour in the winter across Canada for months with John Barry. And then we were on, a, on the road opening for Alan Jackson for a long time. But I did it for a little over a year is when I uh, we took a break. She was going to make her second record. And I was kind of feeling like, okay, you know, this was a lot of fun. Got to play on Letterman and Leno and, you know, Conan and every every show you can imagine that was a big show at the time and several times. And play in front of, you know, thousands of people. But I was playing other people's guitar parts, not following my career, which was I really wanted to write. 
and I just felt like it was time to, to bail and get back to my writing career. And so I left. But it was a fun ride. Yesterday, when we were talking on the phone, you were telling me about something that it seems to be a trend across the country for songwriters. People who write for a particular genre, whether it's rock or country or, or several genres, they're now writing for television or movies. And I'm hoping you can tell us about that transition that you've made with your writing. Okay, so yeah, I can. Um, so this was like towards the end of the time that I was living in, in Tennessee. There was um, a thing hit Nashville around 2000, right around there, where all of a sudden they weren't signing anybody to publishing companies. I'd lost my deal, and 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 um, I'd gone all over town. And I couldn't get signed, and I had a lot of friends who had had many number ones who couldn't get arrested. I mean, it was like nobody could get signed. They just were backing off because country was losing some of its market share. Maybe it had become a little too pop already or something. What happened? You know, the big, it, was the, it was a big downturn in country music. And I was kind of going, man. And then I was renting my house out in the Palisades where I lived. And I couldn't get it. And the people moved out and I couldn't get anybody back, back in it. And I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And my friends in L.A. were going, Ed, you ought to come back out here. We're all doing this TV music. You're perfect for it. You know, you're eclectic. You can play all these instruments. You should come back out here and do this. And at first I was going, oh, I don't know. And, you know, but after a while it started like, you know, I started thinking more and more about it. And, and then, you know, finance, financially it was starting to get pressing. And so I, you know, we made the decision to come back to, to, uh, to the house in Palisades and sold the place in Franklin. It was a slow haul. I mean, at first it was just, you know, writing some stuff and going in uh, with my friend Bill Bergman over to Megatracks and, doing a country CD and then doing some other, uh, some gospel country CDs and stuff like that. Bill Bergman's a sax player in the band Jack Mack and the Heart Attack, by the way. Those guys are real friends of mine. All along, I'd been working with Bruce Hannafin. He'd, you know, he would call me from time to time and ask me for some tunes to stick in the movies of the week he was doing, and I would send him songs. And, he, you know, we got many songs in movies that way, TV movies. Bruce is the composer for Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers, and Swamp People, to name a few. <laughs> and, you know, Bruce, and then, and then, you know, after a while, when I moved back, Bruce started hiring me to uh, be his session player. And I would come over and he'd just pay me to do guitar stuff and dobro and things like that on his, on his uh, pieces. And back then it was Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers, I think, were the main shows he was doing. And then we did a couple. He... At a certain point, it got to where I said, you know, instead of paying me, why don't we just, you know, let's write some of the stuff together. And you don't have to pay me anything, and I'll just, we'll just do it together. And we started doing that. And we did like, a, I don't know, two or three little series that existed for a while. One was like a barbecue show. And one was a, one of those, what's they call that thing where they get catfish, a noodling for catfish kind of show. <laughs> You know, oh, where they yeah. dig, stick their hands in there and pull out a big catfish. Anyways, we did a few shows that, you know, did okay. Barbecue Pitmasters did the best out of those first few shows we did. He still had his big shows, and he would bring me in to do tracks for that stuff, too. I wrote some of the theme things for some of the different um, actors on Ice Road Truckers and stuff like that. But then uh, he got Swamp People, and I was starting to do tracks for that. And then after a while, you know, we started writing that 
you know, I would compose music with him for that. He still does the bulk of all that, but because most of it's the Danger drum sound, which is really his original thing. It's all over everything on on TV now, and for any kind of show where there's drama going on, there's all that drum stuff going on. Bruce was the first guy that really came up with that thing. So most of Swamp People is that um, stuff, but... You know, I've, I've done quite a bit of stuff where it's the full-on with the dobros and the banjos and the whole nine yards with me uh, composing that stuff. And then, you know, Bruce adding his piece into it, and there you go. And so it's the, that's kind of what I've been doing. That And it became a lot more lucrative in the last, you know, I'd say six, seven years. You know, I'm still writing with friends who uh, put out records and stuff like that locally here and stuff. But, you know, mostly the money's coming from that and playing gigs, which, I, of course, we can't do now, so... At least for a while, anyways. Is there anything in music that you would like to do that you haven't yet? Well, I would love to have a number one. I think that that Engelbert song might have gone to that in Europe, but I've never been able to figure out if it just got to number two or number one. I would love to have that happen. Um, You know, so I keep my fingers crossed for that someday. You know, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've played on all the big shows. I've played on front of giant crowds. I've done all that. I still love to play live. Actually, in some ways, I kind of prefer playing to more intimate crowds. But, so I'm kind of, I don't know. I would love to get on another big hit TV show. That would be nice. You know, that would really be awesome. And, you know, I mean, I would love for Garth to cut Louisiana in the rain. <laughs> That would be that would be a, that would be one. Okay, there's a good one right there. What would you say is the best thing about being Ed Berghoff? Oh boy, uh, let's see. I think the best thing is that I'm I've got a crazy diverse mind, and I can jump from one thing to another, and you know, and be involved in a lot of different projects at the same time. Not at the same time, if you know what I mean. But I mean, I can like. I'm working on finishing my first ever CD of me just singing my songs. At the same time, I've been writing a book for the last couple of years that I'm getting close to finishing. I can also just, when I don't want to do that and doing this time when we have to stay at home a lot, I've been working in the garden a lot, and I've always loved doing that. I love building stuff. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff in my life, from construction through building stained glass windows to flipping houses i've done all kinds of crazy stuff so i mean i can easily get myself into i like learning new things and and so that's kind of uh i'm open to that kind of thing i think that's the thing that i like the most i always like to give the guest the stage at the end i always like to let them just say whatever they want to say and it's not it doesn't have to be limited to music but what would you say to anyone who's tuned in um, as far as, as far as like writing and things like that, or, or just in general? The sky's the limit. Okay. Well, I'll kind of, let me, is it okay to say a few things, a few different things? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, as far as writing and a career in music, I would always say, young people, you have to be diverse to stay in it. If you're really, and you have to really be dedicated, you have to like have a thing where you you need it in your life. Otherwise you don't feel right, you know, kind of, 
to drive yourself to get good at whether it's playing, writing, singing, producing, you know, all of it. it takes a lot of time and patience and and stick with itness. And then to stay successful in it, you have to be diverse. That's why, you know, I've stayed at writing. I've gotten into composing. I've always stayed at being a performer. All of that together makes for not like going to make you super rich, but it makes for a living. And so that's what you got to do if you want to be, you know, stick in the music business. As far as in life in general, it's like try not to sweat the small stuff too much. It's it's hard to do. I fall victim to failing at that a lot, but I feel best when I do it. And particularly in these tough times right now where there's, you know, so much uncertainty, you know, stay close to your family, love the ones that are close to you, stay in touch with your, you know, with your family and friends. My wife, you know, of course I'm close to her every day, but I mean, do good things together and try to just uh, be a part of the healing of humanity here for this is a the biggest event most of us will ever know in, in our lifetimes. Well, that's, that's true. Absolutely. I, well, I hope it's, I hope it is the biggest event because I don't know <laughs> if we can stomach another one. <laughs> Neither do I, frankly. Uh. So how would you define Ed Berghoff? I put all these labels on you that you're a songwriter, a musician, a, a publisher, a producer. Who is the man at heart? Um, it's all those things. Add composer to it. I'm a bandmate, you know. I'm um, I'm a family man, a lover of dogs, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I like to be connected, but I also like to have my own time too, where I can zone into whatever it is I'm working on. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way too. Well, Ed. Thank you very much for giving so generously of your time. It's been a pleasure to interview you. Thanks, Paul. All right, sir. Well, I really, really appreciate it. I hope our paths cross again. Yeah, I certainly do. Can I throw in one more little uh, kicker for, for my band? Please do. <laughs> yeah, I got a band called Tex Pistols. We're looking forward to being able to play again for everybody when this all comes to an end and we can all get back together again. And that's Tex Pistols. Yeah, Tex, T-E-X, Pistols. Okay. And keep us surprised about this album of yours. Oh, yeah, I will. I will. And I'll let you know when my book's done, too. I think it's going to be pretty good, too. Great. Please do. All right. Thanks, Paul. All right, sir. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Written by Irving Berlin. Performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scanning G-Things. Improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.